We have seen, I trust, during these days that one thing ultimately is needful. One thing is needful. And this is the word of the Lord. It is not the opinion of men. It is not the opinion of a preacher. But it is the word of the Lord that ultimately one thing is needful. We have seen, I trust, that David, the great teacher, leader, soldier, psalmist, sought for only one thing in life. And he sought diligently for it. One thing have I desired of the Lord, not power, not preeminence, not prominence, one thing. That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Now, such language is somewhat foreign to us today. We belong to the mechanistic age, the age of the technician or if you like, the operator, the age of the doer. When success is evaluated on the basis of statistics, on that which is seen. And yet we know that the word that the Lord gave to Samuel that day when he was to choose the king over Israel is still the same today. God does not look on the outward appearance. Man looks on the outward appearance, the statistics, the image that is projected. But God looketh on the heart. Now this is difficult for us to grasp because we are placed right down in the very center of this frenetic society which has been developed and of which we are a part. There is no need for me to remind you that the more the devil takes hold of any situation, the more frantic it becomes, the more restless it becomes. Because the devil is a restless spirit, walking up and down, restless. Restlessness characterizes the enemy himself. And the more a man becomes involved in the things of time and sense, almost to the exclusion of the things of eternity, the more restless he becomes. We must be on guard against this. It's a subtle and fatal snare into which to fall. God looks on the heart. And therefore, we need to come back again to these words. One thing is needful. One thing have I desired of the Lord. Now, what will be the practical outworking of such a life? And how will we be able to determine whether or not a person is walking with the Lord in this way of worship and fellowship. This is to be our daily, our moment by moment throughout the day objective. It may surprise you to know that the word is most, that is most commonly translated prayer in the New Testament has nothing to do with asking the Lord for anything. By far the most common word, translated prayer, reveals that prayer is an inward attitude of surrender and worship. This is what prayer is. This is prayer. But that is not always what prayer is to us. Now, prayer is asking and prayer is receiving if we ask according to the will of God. This is true. 
But prayer in its purest essence, prayer in its very foundation, is an inward attitude of surrender and worship. And you will recall we cannot worship unless we surrender, so ultimately the basis of it all is surrender. This submission to the will of God, surrender and worship, this is prayer. This is what Paul means when he says we are to pray without ceasing. We are to be in an unceasing attitude of surrender and worship of the Lord. Now from such a life, there will flow that which will glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. Because this was the life which was experienced by our Lord himself. His was a life of submission to and glorifying of his Father. And therefore, I want to suggest that the glory of God was manifested in our Lord in at least three ways. And the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, who indwells us by his Spirit, will be manifest in at least three ways in the life that is properly harmonized with his will. I would like you to turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Now if you keep one finger there and turn across to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we shall read verse 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace, what he did, his conduct. Full of truth, what he was, his character. The glory of God was manifest in three ways in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the man Christ Jesus. Firstly, in his conduct, what he did. He was full of grace, what he did, his conduct. He was full of truth, what he was his character, and it was seen in his countenance. God was glorified in three ways through the man Christ Jesus, in his conduct, what he did, in his character, what he was, and in his countenance. Now, let us consider, first of all, his conduct. One word sums up his conduct, grace. He was full of grace. Wonderful word. But how was this grace manifest? Think for a moment of his reaction to Judas when Judas betrayed him. Judas came with that band and he made his way to the Lord. He did not merely point at him and say, there he is, or he did not take him by the arm and say, this is the man he kissed him. The grossest betrayal of all history. 
because love's tenderest token is a kiss. He betrayed him with a kiss. Do you think you've been betrayed in your lifetime? I'm sure you have more than once, but have you ever been betrayed with a kiss? What was the Lord's immediate reaction to that? He said, friend. Friend. That's grace. That's grace. What is grace? We say that grace is the unmerited favor of God. Grace is the unmerited favor of God to one who deserves the very opposite. From our viewpoint, Judas did not deserve friend. He deserved to be slain on the spot from man's viewpoint, but that's not God's way. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. What is your immediate reaction to the Judas in your life? The one who opposes you? The one who speaks about you when you are not present in a way that you would never think possible? What is your reaction? Is your reaction at all times one of friend? I'm your friend. Is it? You see, this is grace. This is not only the ability or the capacity to forgive, but the capacity to love the one who from man's viewpoint is not worthy of forgiveness. This is grace. You see, if we are being changed into the same image from one degree of glory to another when we worship our Lord Jesus Christ, if Christ is being formed in us, if we are being conformed to his image, then what he is in us will be manifest through us. And if it is not, something is wrong. If I am what I should be, then the living Christ who lives in me by his Spirit must be free in me to express his life through me. And it will be seen firstly in grace. Grace. We are all familiar with the denial of Peter and what did our Lord say to Peter when Peter denied him with oaths and with cursings? He didn't say a word. He just looked at him. Not a word. Oh, how so very often we betray our sinfulness by, as some call it, blowing off steam. Maybe not blowing off steam in the presence of the one who has wronged us, but maybe in the presence of our wives or husbands, just blowing off steam. God is never glorified by the blowing off of steam. God is love. And the Lord Jesus just looked at him. And when later he told his disciples to meet him, he said, and Peter, and Peter. <laughs> and it was Peter, this one who had betrayed him with oaths and cursings, who stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached in the power of the Holy Ghost. This Peter. Would we have put him aside? Would we have banished him? Possibly, but not the Lord. He'll fill him with the Holy Ghost and make him a leader. And then possibly the greatest example of all of the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ was his prayer for those who crucified him, who railed upon him, who spat upon him, who mocked him. What was his response to that mocking? He prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This is grace. The grace of God. The grace of God. 
This is really sanctification. You've possibly heard of the great Indian Christian Sadhu Sundar Singh, a remarkable Christian who knew the Lord in an unusual way. And an Indian rather sneeringly said to the Sadhu on one occasion, he said, well, Sadhu, uh, you talk about this Christian life, he said, uh, and you've been speaking about this, this sanctification. What is sanctification? The Sadhu looked at him and he said, for sanctification, well, he said, by sanctification, do you mean that when the cruel, sharp, cutting edge of the axe is plunged into the sandalwood tree, that the response of the sandalwood tree is to bathe that axe with its sap, its very lifeblood? Is that what you mean by sanctification? Sanctification, do you mean that when the beautiful rose is plucked by the cruel hand and it's crushed by that hand until it becomes, instead of a beautiful thing, a pulp, a formless thing, do you mean that sanctification is the response of that rose to the crushing cruel hand is to bathe it in its perfume? Is that what you mean? He said, that's enough. That's enough, Sadhu. I've got the point. Yes, that is what sanctification is. That is grace. And our Lord was full of it. Full of it. He was not only full of grace, he was full of truth. Full of truth. There was no shadow cast by turning with our Lord. He was full of truth. That's why he had to address the Pharisees in the manner that he did. He had to tell them what they were. He could do naught but that because he was full of truth. Now, we live in a day of shadows. We live in a day very often of half-truth. There is no such thing as half-truth. It is either truth or it is a lie. And we can live a lie without uttering a word by presenting a false front. Any species of design deceit, said Finney, is a lie. Any deceitfulness, any attitude that is not truth is a lie. The Lord Jesus was full of truth, as well as full of grace. Full of truth in his attitudes, full of truth in his words. Oh, my dear friends, I believe that this is one of the weaknesses today. This is one of the reasons why the Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of truth, is grieved. Men who profess to be servants of Jesus Christ are very often not full of truth. And we will give a little ground here and a little ground there and a little compromise here and a little compromise there in order that we might, we believe or think, advance the gospel. You never advance the gospel in that way. You grieve the Spirit of God. Full of truth. Nothing Jacob-like about the man who is a worshipper of our Lord Jesus Christ and who walks with him is full of truth. I recall on one occasion in Japan during a conference for missionaries, a missionary, a well-known missionary, standing and saying to his assembled brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm a Jacob, I'm a schemer. I'm a schemer, a Jacob.
a twisted man. We will become full of truth. Full of truth. And when this takes place, there will be the manifestation of the glory of God. We all know the story of the founding of the China Inland Mission by Hudson Taylor. We may not be as familiar with the story of the greatest pastor, Chinese pastor, that God ever gave to the China Inland Mission to cooperate with them in their labors. His name was Pastor Xi. As a young man, he was very brilliant. He became an outstanding Confucianist scholar. But he also became addicted to opium until he became just a wreck of a man, but still brilliant. Until he read one day in his local newspaper of a contest. The contest was one which would enable him to win a very considerable sum of money. And it was open to all Confucianist scholars. The contest had been originated by a missionary in a town some distance from where he lived. And as this man, she, read this announcement and this considerable prize, and he could do with that money to buy his opium. He was a little hesitant to enter that contest because he thought, if I win the contest, he noticed that one of the conditions was he would have to go to the town where the missionary was, and he would have to receive from the missionary the prize. And he was not apt to do that because he believed that this missionary was a white devil. But again, he came back to this considerable sum of money, and so he decided to enter the competition, and he won it. There came the advice from the missionary that if he would appear at a certain time on a certain day in the home of the missionary, he would receive his prize. Well, he was in a dilemma. Should he go? Should he go into the presence of this white devil? This white devil could cast a spell on him. Then he decided that it just wasn't worth it, but then he looked again at this large sum of money, and realizing that he needed the money for his opium, he made his way rather hesitatingly one morning to the residence of the missionary, and he had decided that come what may, while he was willing to enter into that room and to receive from the hand of the missionary the prize, he was not going to look at that missionary. He would not look in his face, because if he did, he could cast a spell on it. And so there came the moment when he entered into his presence with head bowed and the missionary greeted him and he greeted the missionary and he sat down and the missionary offered him tea which he would not accept until at last came the moment when he said, well, sir, here is your prize. And still with his head bowed, he accepted the prize. But then he could not forbear to ch just take one fleeting glance at this white devil. And so he very quickly lifted his eyes and dropped them again. Just a fleeting glance. But when he looked into the face of that godly missionary, he saw mirrored there the glory of God. Just a flickering glance and he could not forget it. It haunted him. This man, this man, this man with such a face, with such a manifestation of glory, he must know God. And it brought pastor C to our Lord Jesus Christ. And he became the great Chinese pastor who was called Conqueror of Demons. He had an unusual ministry of casting out demons. 
He could never forget it. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Yes, we should be different. And we should look different. I want you to turn with me to a very wonderful example of one who was a true worshipper of Jesus Christ, one whom we have already considered together, Mary. Now I'd like you to turn with me to John chapter 12. Reading from verse 1. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then said one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and put what and bear what was put therein. Then said Jesus, Let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Now, I want to suggest that wherever you find one who is determined to follow the Lord, you will always find that one is tested. Tested. Study the lives of the saints. What do you find? Their life was an experience of testing and ultimately of triumph. And I want you to consider this experience of Mary's here under three headings, Mary tested, Mary trusted, and Mary triumphant. Mary tested, Mary trusted, and ultimately Mary triumphant. Now she was tested by the death of her brother. She was tested by the death of her brother. She was tested by a tragedy which seemingly could have been avoided. It could have been avoided. And when her brother fell ill, you will recall, they immediately sent for the Lord that he would come and that he would heal the brother. But he did not come. He could have come and he did not do so. The hours passed and the brother worsens and yet still the Lord does not come. The brother con continues to worsen and still the Lord does not come. Can you not imagine the conflict that could have taken place in the heart of Mary? Why does he not come? How the devil could have used this as a fiery dart in the heart. Does he not love you? It may be that he is not the son of God after all. Why does he not come? Is this too much for him? Why does he permit you to suffer in this way? This suffering is utterly unnecessary. Why is he not here? Why, why, why? Have you ever asked why? Can you look back in your life and you look at some particular circumstance and the devil has said to you, why? Why is this necessary? Why has your God permitted this? Oh yes, Mary was tested. 
And if you're going to follow the Lord, you will be tested too. You will be tested by something that defies your understanding. But you see, the test is necessary in order that the Lord might prove that you truly love him and unfailingly trust him. Unfailingly trust him. And so she was tested. Her brother's sick. The Lord could meet his need. He doesn't meet his need. He doesn't come. Why does he not come? And then the brother dies. Well, what is our immediate reaction to a testing, a severe testing? The first thing is to accept it. In acceptance, said Amy Carmichael, lieth peace. In acceptance lieth peace. That's a good word. Because God has permitted it. You may not understand at the moment why, but you know that he has. Because nothing can happen to us without his express permission. In acceptance lieth peace. Accept it. Samuel Rutherford, that great Scottish saint, once uttered this quaint, quaint word. He said, yield yourself to the circumstances of his choice. He purposeth a crop. <laughs> yield yourself to the circumstances of his choice. In other words, don't fight the circumstances which our Lord has placed you in, because in those circumstances he purposes a crop. He purposes that in them you will bear fruit. But you say all oh, the circumstances. <laughs> yes, they can be trying. But I believe there is no more beautiful gem than a pearl. And you know how a pearl is formed. A grain of sand is placed in the oyster which irritates it. And it keeps on irritating and keeps on irritating and keeps on irritating. Until that oyster begins to enclose that grain of sand, that irritant, in a beautiful thing which we call a pearl. You see, it's still there, but it has been mastered. And the result is a thing of beauty. Have you ever seen a, a beautiful Christian? Whenever you see a beautiful Christian, I will show you one who's known a terrible, terrifying irritant. Thank God. And it has produced a beautiful pearl, a beautiful love. Have you ever wondered what it must have been like for the Lord to live with those disciples? What a bunch of men they were. You can't get a more difficult man, a more headstrong, a more superstitious man to deal with than a fisherman. And here they are. They never understood him. He could speak to them. He could tell them. And yet they didn't understand. And yet our Lord in his great high priestly prayer has not a word that is critical to say about them to his father. He does nothing but praise them. I have met two women in my ministry whom I would call Marys. 
possibly above any others that I have met. Both of them beautiful characters, beautiful Christians. And both had similar experiences. One had a husband who was totally unsympathetic to the things of the Spirit in the life of his wife. She had a number of children, but one was her idol, her eldest son. He looked like her. He was like her. A beautiful 17-year-old boy. And in 36 hours, following what seemed to be a tragedy, he was in eternity. And up to that time of tragedy, this woman told me, yes, she'd had an interest in the Lord, and she desired the Lord, and she wanted to follow him. But when her boy died in that hospital, she bowed her head, and she said, the Lord hath given, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. She worshipped. And she's been worshipping ever since. And a very similar thing happened to this other woman. She only had one boy, three girls, one boy, and the Lord took her boy. Tragedy, no. Triumph. <laughs> Triumph. Now the Lord may not see fit to do that with you. He may not. And you must not be afraid that he will do something that will cause you great pain because it is in the time of testing that you prove the sufficiency of his present tense grace. His grace is sufficient. Present tense. It's sufficient for the moment of testing and for the next moment and for the next moment and for the next moment right through to the end. It is sufficient. This is what Mary learned in a time of testing, I'm sure. To accept. And then to give thanks. And then to rejoice. Now, I do not believe that we are victorious in any situation until we are rejoicing. Not holding on, gritting our teeth with a stiff upper lip and saying, well, I'll accept it and I'm giving thanks and I'm waiting for the day of release. No, to accept it, to give thanks, and then to rejoice in the Lord. Not the fact that he has permitted this circumstance, but to rejoice in the Lord who is above and beyond and superior to the circumstance in you. In you, he is sufficient. And if you let him, he will manifest his sufficiency through you and lift you above it. And all the time he's performing that glorious work of producing a pearl, a beautiful Christian life. Mary was tested. She was tested in the crucible of circumstances. It's in that crucible when we, that we realize what we are apart from the grace of God. Oh yes, we do. Because the devil can come to us and say, well, it isn't fair, it isn't fair, it isn't righteous, you shouldn't be treated in this way. Why did this happen to you? Why did the Lord permit it to happen? He could have ordered it otherwise, and yet here it is. What is it all about? Why does this happen to you? And you're in the crucible of circumstances, and the heat begins to, is applied by the Lord, and it gets hot. And as it gets hot, hot very often up to the top of that crucible comes wrong attitudes, critical attitudes. Bitter spirits, hasty words, unloving words, 
And the Spirit of God says, well, just look at what you are. This is what I want to deal with. It's the only way that I can deal with it. And so you let him deal with it by the confession of sin and the appropriation of Jesus Christ to be to you all that he wants to be in order that you might be what you should be for his sake. She was tested. And she was triumphant in the testing. Why? She never uttered a word. She never uttered a word of complaint when the Lord came. She simply said, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. It's not a complaint. She's simply stating a fact. And it's interesting to note that this is the only word uttered by Mary. It's the only thing she said. Thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. And then, because she passed the test, she was trusted. And she was trusted with a very precious revelation. A very precious revelation. That evidently, no other person was trusted with. Despite the fact that our Lord had told them that he was going up to Jerusalem to be crucified at the Passover, they never seemed to be able to grasp it. They never took hold of it. They didn't understand, but Mary did. Mary did. And because of that precious revelation and the understanding which was given her by the Lord, we find Mary taking a pound of ointment of spikenard very costly and anointing the feet of Jesus with that ointment. She was trusted with this precious revelation and then because she knew that our Lord was to be crucified and she believed it, she took this pound of ointment, it would cost at least 40 to 50 dollars, and she broke it upon our Lord, she anointed him unto his burial. And all the time, of course, Martha is serving. Now, I don't know how she obtained all this money to purchase the ointment because it was not it was obviously not a wealthy family had it been a wealthy family Martha would not have been as busy she would have had help and she would not have complained about Mary this was a very costly ointment and she broke it upon her Lord she expended it upon her Lord and we are told that the house was filled with the odor of the ointment and we have a very precious lesson to learn here and it is this. You will recall that women, after the death of our Lord, went early one morning to anoint him. They never did. They never did anoint him. They wanted to, but they didn't. You must pour out your love at the feet of the Lord today, not tomorrow. To love your Lord and express your devotion for, to him is not something for tomorrow. It is for today. There may not be a tomorrow as far as we're concerned. And so we find Mary immediately pouring out her love in, expressed in this very precious ointment, so much so that the house is filled with the odor of the ointment. And all of this because Mary made a choice that Martha seemingly never made. Pouring out her love upon her Lord. 
And because of that poured out love, there was a fragrance. <laughs> there was a fragrance. And because of that fragrance, there is an immediate reaction from the enemy. Immediately, Judas Iscariot says, why wasn't this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Why this waste? Why this waste? This is waste. <laughs> oh, no, it isn't waste. Anything that is bestowed upon the Lord is never wasted. Some years ago, I was in India at a conference for missionaries. And I noticed a little woman there. She was about oh, 45, 50 years old, and she wore the habit of a Protestant sister. You may know that in Europe, there are Protestant orders of sisters. They are somewhat similar to the Roman Catholic order in their service, but of course they, they uh, are not bound by Rome in any way whatsoever. They, they are primarily Lutherans. But these women set themselves aside. They are set aside by the Lord for a special ministry, and they do not marry. And this little sister was there, garbed in her sister's habit at the conference. And I noticed she was very shy and retiring. So I said to my wife, we must speak to this little lady and try to encourage her to participate more in the fellowship in this missionary home. And so I tried to cultivate her fellowship. It was not easy, but after some days, uh, she began to melt a little and we became quite good friends. But she was a most retiring little woman. When we were to leave India to go on to Europe, she said to me, Mr. Carroll, uh, you must visit my sister in Copenhagen. I will write and tell her to expect you. So we were passing through Denmark and we determined that we would just call and visit her sister. But when we called, they said, now you must stay for a few days. So we stayed there for three or four days and uh, on one occasion, her son took us out to a castle, a very famous castle on the outskirts of the city. And uh, as we were viewing the various items of historic interest in the castle, he said to us, well, these are the coats of arms of all the famous families. I think it was the 25 foremost families in Denmark. And uh, he said, this is our coat of arms there, you see. This is our coat of arms there in the corner. Oh, it's very interesting. And then he said, you know my sister Verbeke? This was her name. I said, yes, we know her very well. We count her a very precious friend. He said, my father, before he died, was Denmark's most famous composer. And my sister Verbeke, before she went out to India, was his concert pianist. And my sister Verbeke toured all the capitals of Europe and was a well-known figure in musical circles in Europe, a brilliant concert pianist. And there she was in India, this beautiful, talented, gifted woman living in a filthy Indian village. And there's no filthier place in all the world than a filthy Indian village. 
because in most of those villages there is no such thing as a toilet. Early in the morning, if you're in a village, you will see little figures bobbing up almost out of the ground and they will go away about 20 or 30 yards. It is time for morning ablutions. And when that withering sun begins to beat down on that village and it can get on the plains of India as hot as 130 degrees, can you imagine the stench? It's the only place in my life where I've ever felt that I was going to be sick. And usually in those villages, there's just one watering hole. And that watering hole very often is just covered with green scum. That is where everybody bathes, the children, the grown-ups, and the cows. It's filthy. It smells. It's hard to live there. This is where Sister Vibiki lives. She has a ministry to the village women of India. You might say, why this waste? <laughs> why this waste? Why this wonderful woman pouring out her life there? She could have had all that Europe has to offer her in the music world. She had it and she left it to pour out her life to women on the plains of India. Why this waste? She's not pouring it out upon the women in India. She's pouring it out at the feet of Jesus in India. There is a difference. She's pouring it out at the feet of the Lord Jesus who is in India and who is in the villages. That she ministers to the women is incidental. She's ministering to Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. She'll have a great reward. Booth Clibben was a justice on the High Court of India in the days of England's greatness in the last century in India. He was converted. And this man of unusual standing and esteem resigned. And from the High Court of India, living in a palace of his own, he decided to join the Salvation Army because he wanted reality. He returned to England. He was trained in a Salvation Army college. And then he returned to India because he believed he had a ministry to the outcasts. And an outcast at the turn of the century, or late last century, was somebody in India to be despised. And so he decided to dress like an outcast. No shoes. Nothing in his purse, no food in his satchel. He just went out there to live with the outcasts. A man of high rank. And 20-odd thousand, thousand of them were won to Jesus Christ through that man. I met a woman in India who knew him, and at a time when she was in hospital, her child had been born, stillborn, and she was in great sorrow, and she was standing, she told me, in one corner of her hospital room in great sorrow and almost engulfed by it when she said suddenly she felt surrounded by peace and she was lifted above her sorrow and she turned and she saw that this man, Booth Clibben, who was then an elderly man, had entered her hospital room to comfort her. A fragrance filled the room because of the presence of the man. We don't know much about that, do we, 
in our busy Western world. And we don't know much about the power of God either. Mary was tested and Mary was triumphant. And Mary was trusted with a very precious revelation. Are we going to be like Martha and just too busy to think very much about it at all? Will we go back to the rush and the hurry of our everyday life and just forget all about it? Will we? That is tragically possible. Mary made a choice that Martha never made, and she made it every day of her life. Now, shall we bow together in prayer?